Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Good morning. You may be seated. That's for you. (laughs) Good morning. My name is Oscar, and I'm one of the leaders here. For those of you who are here for the first time, uh, we are King's Cross Church. We have been going through a series in Philippians, working our way through that book. Uh, But this week and for the next four weeks, we're going to be taking a break, and we're going to be going through the Psalms. We do this every summer. Last summer, we did five weeks in the Psalms. This This summer, we'll do four And if some of you remember, we started last year's psalm series with Psalm 1. Scott did a great job of that. Uh, I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach than him. This is one of the beautiful things about the scriptures is that they can be mined. The same few scriptures can be mined over and over and over again for different things, for different good newses for us. Uh, Psalm 1 is a good place to start with any series in the Psalms. One, because it starts there. But also, Psalm 1 really is written as an introduction to the entire book. It's meant to be almost like a menu item. Like, you get excited when you read Psalm 1. You're ready for the rest of what Psalm has to offer. Uh, it's, it, we went to a great restaurant the other day, and I'm like thumbing through the menu trying to figure out what I want to order. And... It's like, boom, there it is. It was uh, lamb shank mole on top of chorizo cheesy potatoes. I'm getting that. That's, that's what Psalm 1 is to the Psalms. By the way, if you guys want to know what restaurant that is, see me after class, you're treating. The first, the, the Psalm starts out with blessed is the man. And so the first thing that we have to ask ourselves is what does this word blessed mean? Blessed shows up, this version of the word blessed shows up 26 times in the Psalms. And every time it shows up in this way, what it's referring to is an abundance, an overflowing of happiness and joy. In other words, Psalm 1, the first word tells us exactly what it's about. Psalm 1, in this morning's sermon, is about our happiness, about our joy happy is the man which of course asks makes us ask the question is true everlasting joy true happiness the kind of happiness that that surpasses that transcends circumstances circumstances is that kind of a man really possible can we really be a people that are truly happy and joyful no matter what is going on around us The psalmist in Psalm 1 seems to think that it's possible. Let's read that first verse again together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The first thing he starts us out with 
is a what not to do. But this isn't a list. It could be easily read as a list. But actually what's happening here is it's a de-evolution of our joy and happiness. This is talking about a movement away from God into a, a place of sadness. Notice the action verses. The action verses is walks, stands, and sits. Again, this is not a, a list. Rather, this is a de-evolution of who we are and of our joy. This is a movement away from God. So what the psalmist means by walking, let's start there. This is really important because I really want us to capture this. This is going to set the frame for the rest of the chapter. Walking, according to the psalm, psalmist, means listening. Are you listening to bad advice? Are you lending your ear to people who do not have your joy or God's glory in mind when they talk to you? Are you walking in the counsel of the wicked? Of course, I, I think of Job in the Old Testament. He is in a time of, of turmoil, of unhealth. Loved ones are dying. He's losing his money, and he has friends that are giving him bad advice. The counsel that they have for him is not to the glory of God, and it is not ultimately for his joy. The next step after, after listening is standing in the way. And this idea of standing is trying it, giving it a shot, applying the advice are you taking bad counsel and then applying it to your daily life? And the third one, and this is the one we're going to spend a little bit more time in, is sitting. Sitting is, is really important. This is kind of the, the crux of these three things. Sitting means accepting, becoming, belonging, or identifying. Now let me explain. 2,000 years ago, where you sat for instance, at a wedding banquet, mattered by who you were. Your, your value to society determined where you were. In other words, the servants sat over here, the middle class here, the upper, upper class here, and of course, the best seats in the house with the best food and the best view was saved for the royal class. It's really not much different than my high school, actually. We had Senior Hill. Then it was the juniors, the sophomores, the freshmen, and literally way at the bottom was drama class. I'm not even exaggerating. That's not a joke. <laughs> and then there was me sitting in the seat of the detention room. <laughs> Unfortunately, it wasn't my fault, though. Where you sit, according to the scriptures, according to David, the psalmist, is, is determined by your worth and your value. So when it says, do not sit at the seat of scoffers, what it's ultimately asking us is, where's your allegiance? Where's your identity? Where is your heart? Or better yet, where do you put your hope? You see this progression? Walk, sit, stand, listening, trying, and eventually accepting, coming, belonging, and identifying. This is the de-evolution of our happiness. There's another de-evolution as well. Uh, let's read it again and notice the people that it, it, it mentions. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. Real quick here. Wicked is, is ultimately, even though that sounds bad, that's just the beginning. That's ultimately every single one of us. The scripture explains to us that not one is born good. 
that each one of us from birth has a propensity to sin. Now, if you don't believe that, it's probably because you've never served in children's ministry. <laughs> Remember one time I was preaching and Kelly was serving in children's ministry and uh, it was a pretty rough morning. Nobody laughed at my jokes. So I was ready to complain. I get in the car and she's like, I, I say, well, how was your, how was children's ministry? And she's like, I got pooped on. How was your church service? And I was like, well, I don't think anybody pooped. <laughs> Sinner, the next step is our active movement away from God. And ultimately, a sinner, this active movement away from God is also an active movement away from joy and away from happiness. And last, scoffer. The scoffer is an open rejection and a denial of God and who he is and all that he has to say about us. Again, this isn't a, a list. This is a warning about a downward spiral away from our joy and away from our God. I want to apply this practically in two ways. The practical application first is, is this. Uh, I'm thinking of the husband that goes out drinking with his buddies after work, and he's having a rough time at home, and he's telling them about the troubles that he's having. And his bar buddy, all he has to say is like, well, let's just drink up and go to the strip club later. That is obviously bad counsel that has not the glory of God nor the good of this man in his, in his eyes. Or the woman who, same things, having relational issues with her husband, she goes out for a drink with her, with her girlfriends and they're like, yeah, men are idiots. They're all dumb, right? This is unhelpful advice that does not have our good or the glory of God in mind. You see, walk, stand, and sit can sometimes be us seeking out advice, acting on and believing in it because it validates our already sinful and bad behavior, which ultimately moves us away from happiness. Since, since we were kids, it's easy to find friends that validate our bad behavior. But here's the thing. I actually think that there's a walk, stand, and sit in each one of our lives that is far more disruptive and far more active than any friend with bad advice that we might have. And that is this thing right here. It's our cell phones. Disruptive te technology is far more active in a daily basis of robbing our joy than bad advice. It's absolutely true. It's recognized that Western American culture is slowly but surely becoming less and less happy. Anxiety and depression and suicide and division is all on the rise. Technology can be a good thing, but it also can be incredibly disruptive towards our happiness. We are all living in this stage of ambient anxiety. I've said this before. See, anxiety, clinical anxiety is a, is a really important thing that we should discuss, and that is something that statistically 18% of the people in this room were experienced in the next 18 months, which is a big deal. I'm not talking about clinical anxiety right now. I'm talking about something that every single one of us probably is already feeling, this ambient anxiety. It's sort of like a background hum of just not good enough, always busy, needing to do something more. It's just that pressure of living in today. New York Times article recently said that we are in the age of anxiousness. They compared us to the 90s, and this is what they said. 
few Americans would assess our national emotional state as anything better than not great. In the 90s, we cultivated an air of depressive slouching. The modern counterparts developed an ethos, that's us, an ethos of relentless worry and agitation. Panic strivers have replaced sullen slackers as the caricatures of the moment. And Xanax has eclipsed Prozac as the emblem of our national mood. Friends, we have access to way too much information, to way too much media. It is like drinking from a fire hose. <coughs> and the ambient anxiety that we all face is the background worry of our lives. And it is distracting us from our joy and our God. I mean, if you think about it, like every single one of us in some way are constantly disengaged from the present moment, right? Like we all are living with this hyper awareness of what's going on because of our phones. Alan Noble wrote in a book that he, Disruptive Witness is the name of the book. Chris bought it for me, so I had to quote it in the scripture. This is what Alan Noble says. When we go for a walk in the woods alone, we are never merely going for a walk in the woods alone. Our experience of nature is filtered through the Instagram pictures we take and our awareness of how our friends will experience those pictures and how they will think of us in light of those pictures. Or we might mediate the walk through an outdoor hipster aesthetic that we've pieced together from indie folk band album covers. Or we might mediate the walk through an awareness of global warming and its effect on the environment. Either way, however you look at it, we conceive of the walk it is never simp simply a walk in the woods. This walk, stand and sit in the seat of scoffers, is more da dangerous to us because we don't cognitively choose to walk, sit, and stand in the seat. We are caught in a current that's taking us out to sea further away from the shoreline of joy in our Creator. We are, friends, being robbed of our happiness. So what do we do about it? Verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Let's talk about that word delight in the law of the Lord. This is generally where a pastor will start talking about the do's and don'ts of scriptures. I've heard it said that the scripture is our instruction manual to life. And it is true. There are ordinances in scriptures that we should heed. God is our creator. And our creator knows well how his creation should work. But delighting in the law is more than just delighting in his ordinances. See, the scripture means more than just what God says is right and wrong. In the scriptures, we have God's ordinances, God's promises, God's story of his work of redemption, the gospel. We have the fullness of truth, beauty, and goodness. You see, that word law does not mean the rules of the Bible. That word law is Torah, and Torah is everything that God has to say about life, truth, beauty, and goodness. Delighting in the law is like saying delight in all that God is. 
Happy is the man who delights in God's work, in God's promises, in God's ways, in God's gospel. Happy is the man and woman who delights in God and in God alone. Which, of course, makes us ask, what does it mean to delight? Jeremiah 17 gives us an echo of what Psalm 1 is. And here's how he words it. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Delight is to enjoy to savor, to trust, and to believe in who God is. You see, happiness is not about our surroundings, ultimately. It's about where you put your trust, where you put your hope. Where do you sit? Are you sitting in the seat of scoffers? Are you sitting in the lap of your Father in heaven who knows you and loves you and knows all joy? You see, every single one of us belongs to something. That's a funny thing to say because in our culture, we're told that we are this this, uh, very individualistic person. Like, you are you and you alone. But actually, that's really a pop culture narrative that's not true. Uh, Philosophy, theology, Um, in psychology all point to the reality that we do belong to something. We are not hyper-individualistic people. So what do you belong to? What do you hope in? Is your hope in your reputation, your career, your comfort, your family, your power? What is it that has your heart? What is it that you believe that if you had more of, your happiness and joy would increase? This is why it's important to ask ourselves that question. Because the psalmist is telling us that God is the only one that will ever always deliver on his promises. All these other things will let you down at some point. Everlasting joy everlasting joy that that surpasses and transcends our circumstances comes when we delight, trust, put our identity in God and God alone. It's funny because people tell us that Christianity is a joy kill. Like it's just all about these rules and regulations of things you can't do. It's about not having fun. But according to David, Christianity is all about our joy. The glory of God and our happiness are two sides of the same coin. But let's be real here. Show of hands. Because now we're we're talking about delighting in the law of God, right? Uh, And one way certainly of doing that is reading our scriptures, our books, our Bibles. How many of us, show of hands, how many of us at some point, at least one time when you read your Bible, it wasn't that fun? Just a show of hands. Once. Just one time. So why? Why does that happen? Is that because the psalmist is wrong? Is it because we can't take God at his word? Is he not truly delightful? 
Of course we can take God at his word. The problem isn't with the scriptures or with God. Often the problem is with us. You see, we have to refine our palates so that we can begin to understand and savor the goodness that is God. This is kind of a weird analogy, but imagine yourselves as all of us as giant tongues and we're walking around this world and we're just bumping into things, right? And as we bump into the muck and the mire, as we bump into the grime that is around us, we're just picking up those flavors and we're tasting them. You see, we're used to to the taste of sin and often we just don't know, we don't have the palates to taste the goodness that is God. We need refined palates. Sometimes we're like children that turn down a steak dinner for a Happy Meal. Or sometimes we're like Cammie that tries to tell us that Five Guys is better than In-N-Out. She needs Jesus. I had this friend, he loved wine. And he tried getting me into it. And to be honest with you, the first time I had a glass of wine with him, I didn't know the difference between a Merlot and a Cab. I probably still don't know the difference other than like the sticker on the front of the bottle. But this guy, he, he would taste wine and he would talk about it like it was poetry. He's like, oh, this has this buttery this and this old world that and this. And, that. and I'm like looking at my glass like, do I want to taste old world? Is, that, is like old world a good thing? You see, this guy... Jeff is his name. Jeff understood wine in a way that I couldn't. And because of that, he could enjoy wine in a way that I was just missing out. Like he could enjoy a good glass of wine and it changed the flavor of his steak. See, I I didn't have that refined palate. And for us, sometimes when we read the scriptures, when we spend time with the Lord and it feels dry and boring, ultimately what's happening is that we need a refined palate. Let me just mention one thing before we move on. This is kind of a side note, but I felt like it was important to mention here. We have to be careful though, because we're talking about ultimately that God is our one source of delight. But we have to be careful because if we approach God demanding happiness, it's not gonna work. You see, ultimately approaching God demanding happiness is turning God into our own personal genie, our own Robin Williams. Like, okay, God, I'm gonna give this a shot. They say that you will make me a more happy person, so I'm going to try you out and we'll see what happens. That's not, that's not honest. That's not an honest approach to God. It kind of reminds me of we used to, Chris and I used to be college group leaders at two different, at two different uh, churches. And being a college group leader, it's a lot like being a relational counselor because everyone's getting together, falling in love, and breaking up in like a four-day period. And so some of the guys would come up to me and be like, hey, I'm, I'm in love with this girl. I love her. And I would ask them, what do you love about them? And they would say, the most common answer that I would hear is that I love them because of the way they make me feel. Think about that answer for a minute. Ultimately, what they're saying isn't, I love them. What they're saying is, I love myself. Because what happens when that person stops making them feel happy, right? My point is this, is that we need to delight in God because he is delightful. When we look to God with delight and joy, when we see him as the source of joy and goodness, happiness comes. If you look for happiness and joy, you won't find it. But if you look to God with delight, you will find true, everlasting joy and happiness. How do we do that? How do we look with delight? Look at the next part of the verse. 
and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, this is saying more than just, hey, go read your Bible every morning before you leave the house. That's a great practice. It can be very helpful. But this meditation means more than just that. This meditation, the word that it's using, it's, it's talking about a quiet whisper, a repetitious beat, this hum where you just sit in and marinate and listen to what God has to say. We marinate our mind, body, and soul in all the things of God, in all the things that he has to say about us. The monks, in, for the Christian monks in the 14th century did a really good job of this. They would daily go out into the wilderness with their Bibles, find a quiet place by themselves. They would open it up and they would just re- repeat three or four lines over and over and over again. And they would sit there in silence and spend time with their creator listening, allowing his words to just marinate in their minds, to move from their head to their heart. We are not set up to do this as American Westerners. We are so stinking distracted all the time. Again, because of our cell phones is one of the reasons. Just the other day, I've been waiting like eight months for Stranger Things to come out. And so it's finally out. I'm watching episode two. It's a good episode. And without even knowing why or when, I am on my phone looking at ESPN. And I got frustrated because it's like, Man, I've been, here's this like immersive storytelling experience and I can't even stay fully engaged with it without picking up my phone. This is how distracted we are. We're like the dogs in Up. We're like, squirrel. Every time our our creator tries saying something to us, we're like, "Uh, squirrel. Like we just, we can't stay paying attention. We have a fire hose of media. It's just too much, too fast. Our minds never have a chance of slowing down. We are not trained, living today, we are not trained to rest, think, or slow down. Those make us, those things make us feel uncomfortable. Even though we know we need them, often we feel uncomfortable doing it. Again, Alan Noble, the book that Chris bought me, he says this, the constant distraction of our culture shields us from the kind of deep, honest reflection needed to ask why we exist and what is true. Now, our culture has picked up on this. And lately, there's a lot of really good apps and blogs and resources out there that helps us practice mindfulness. But if, if a, a distracted mind is the way of the West, mindfulness is the way of the East. And Christian meditation is something a little bit different. Mindfulness is incredibly helpful. It helps us slow down and clear our minds and make it a blank space but we can't just leave it there. Christian meditation is something that we ought to learn to practice. And Christian meditation starts with mindfulness, slowing down, getting into a quiet place, clearing our minds, but then filling it with the things that are of God. That's what it means to, be a, 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 to meditate as a Christian on God's word. We just bought a griddle, and this thing is awesome. Some of you have already enjoyed it. It is amazing. Uh, the interesting about the gr- the interesting thing about the griddle is that it is basically a giant cast iron, so it is raw metal. If it's unprotected, it will just by mist it'll collect rust very quick. So the first thing I have to do when I get this raw metal is I have to season it. I put oil, then I cook the oil off. 
uh, and then we can cook something. And so over and over again, the more we season it, the more protected the grill gets and the better the flavor of the food becomes, right? This is a lot like Christian meditation. We ought to clear our minds, but if we want our hearts and our minds to be protected from the elements, we need to fill them. We need to season them with the things of God, with what our Creator says about us, about truth, beauty, and goodness, about what it looks like to be happy and joyful people. Now, here's one example of protecting our minds. Every single one of us, here's the interesting thing, every single one of us already has a meditation because we all in some ways talk to ourselves. Don't lie, you talk to yourself. I know we all do it. We all have this album playing in the back of our heads. And that album says something about who we are, who we believe we are. So let me give you an example about sitting in the seat of scoffers using our cell phones. You're on Instagram and you're like, oh, our friends, they went on this really cute vacation. You're a failure. Oh, cool. My buddy just got a pay raise. You're such a loser. You don't work hard enough. Oh man, they just got engaged. That's super cute. You'll never find somebody like that. Oh, she looks cute in that outfit. You're too fat. You couldn't pull that off. You see, there is, there is this quiet whisper in your head now. You're sitting in the seat of scoffers. We are all, we are all sitting in the seat of scoffers. What would happen if we got up, we walked, stood, and sat in the seat of our creator? If we replaced those utterances, which does not have our joy in mind, the whole reason why every single app on our phone is built is made for us to buy something and feel left out. It does not have your joy and happiness in mind, but God does. So what happens when we replace the utterances of life with the truth of God's words? What happens when you sit, when you stand, walk, and sit in the seat of your heavenly father and hear what he has to say about you? when we marinate our minds in who he is and what he has to say about our lives. According to Psalm 1, that ambient anxiety could slowly melt away and we can find rest for our souls. His delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Let's look at that next verse. He is like a tree planted near streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. This is important. Seasons is a representation of the reality that sometimes we have tough times. We live in a world where sickness happens. Financial stress is a real thing. Loved ones pass away. We lose our jobs. Somebody who we respect will, will hurt us and let us down. These things happen. With the scriptures talking about this everlasting joy that God is offering us when we sit in the seat of our heavenly father can transcend all of that. In other words, Christianity and the joy that we find in Psalm 1 is not about us avo avoiding pain and it's not about us pretending like pain doesn't exist. We're not like, what's the guy in the Lego movie? Everything is awesome and like everything's falling apart around him. He's like, it's everything's awesome. Like that's not what the Bible is trying to get us to do. 
Pain is a real thing. Pain and suffering can happen, but everlasting joy and happiness can help us move through that. Pain can push us further into the love of God. Timothy Keller says it like this, Christianity teaches that contrary to fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contrary to Buddhism, suffering is real. Contrary to karma, suffering is often unfair. But contrary to secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you could ever imagine. You see, this isn't about pretending to be happy. It's about finding a life spring of everlasting joy that will sustain you through all seasons of drought. Jeremiah 17, one more time, let's read it. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. God is our safe harbor in the hurricane. We're going to end with this. It talks about fruitfulness. That, uh, that this tree that has found everlasting joy produces fruit. And the point here is this. The fruitfulness of the tree is actually not about you, which makes sense. Trees don't eat their own fruit. The fruitfulness of the tree the fruitfulness of joy and happiness is for others around you to enjoy. You see, the cultural narrative that we have right now is to go chase your dreams, to go be happy, and it doesn't matter what happens to the people around you. You're not responsible for their happiness. You go do you. The problem with this advice in the seat of scoffers is that it creates narcissism. The alternative to that is what the gospel says. You want to gain your life, you lose your life. Only when you die to yourself, only when you realize that you're not the center of the universe, that God is, and then you sit in his seat and enjoy his company and his word, do you find true joy and happiness. And then your joy and your happiness becomes something, a source of happiness and joy to other people. Your happiness is never at the cost of your friends, of your family, of your spouse, of your children. True happiness does not come at a cost to others. When we strive for happiness, thinking it comes from career, comfort, reputation, respect, power, we will do that at the cost of our loved ones. We'll either sacrifice them on the altar of career or comfort, or we will accuse them of being what's wrong with our happiness. You're making me uncomfortable. You're the reason why my career isn't going the way it is. You're in the way of my happiness. All of this moves further and further away from the God who will bring us true joy. Delight and trust in God. Bear his fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. Be a source of happiness to others. Only when you find God glorious and good and begin caring about the people of, around you will you find true, everlasting joy. We're going to close with this quote by John Piper. He says it very well. The more you delight in him, the more you will see yourself as heirs and stewards of his story of redemption and hope. The more you delight in him, 
the more you begin walking, standing, and sitting at the seat of your Heavenly Father. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.